Well, good evening. It is good to see you all out this evening as we continue in our study of the book of Jonah. Uh, the last song that we sang, I remember uh, the first time that I heard it, uh, we were at Bible camp and uh, we always had you know, a group of us young guys. We were early teenagers. Our voices were just cracking a little bit. Uh, but we had the range to start to go way down low. And so there would be like seven or eight of us in the back row of Bible camp, and we'd go as low as we could possibly get and try to resonate down in the, the deep elements of the bass line. And uh, that and a few other songs were that way. And our uh, camp director, he was actually from Camp Barakal, and uh, we enjoyed uh, him a lot because he had that deep resonating voice. So we were all trying to mimic him. As he would get way down deep, and you could just feel the vibrations. And so I, I, it takes me right back uh, to the mountains in Colorado, a uh, little chapel that has been now destroyed by a snowstorm. It, uh, it's collapsed now, but uh, it takes me right back to that moment. Uh, so I appreciate that. Let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. And as we did last week, we're going to have a little fun with this. If you weren't here Last week, uh, you kind of missed out, so I didn't want you all to feel like you had missed out. If you were down at Mel Trotter, I want you to catch up a little bit. And We talked a little bit about Jonah and the role of Jonah and how we first heard about Jonah. So we did an impromptu, informal survey last week, and we're going to do it again this evening just to make sure nothing has changed. And so you're just going to shout out your answer. Uh, your answer to the question, the question is this. Where did you first hear about Jonah? Sunday school. I didn't hear anything other than Sunday school. Anybody have something else? Parents. Uh, okay. So parents in Sunday school. The point is you learned about Jonah at a very early age and you probably didn't study or at least dig deeply into the book of Jonah, into the life of Jonah very much throughout the rest of your life to this point. Well, we're going to change that. We're going to dig deeply into the book of Jonah, and we're going to have a lot of fun while we do it, as we see, uh, as Steve said a little while ago, ourself in him a lot. Jonah and us has a lot more in common than we'd like to admit. And not in the good side of Jonah so much, but more in his rebellious fleeing side. There was a reality TV show entitled Dirty Jobs. Uh, had, the host was uh, Mike Rowe. And I don't know, I... I did a little bit of research. Evidently, it's still on. I haven't seen it for many, many years, but uh, evidently, it's still on. And the host, Mike Rowe, would go to these dirty jobs that the show would highlight. And the viewer would be brought into the conditions of the workers and what they had to experience. And some of those were just nasty, dirty, filthy jobs, like picking up roadkill kind of thing in the middle of summer down south. Uh, others would be uh, cleaning out sewer lines and septic tanks and all kinds of things. And some would be more on the dangerous side, uh, that there was some risk involved. And so while some of the jobs were filthy, others were dangerous, and you got you got to see these various jobs as micro would take you to them. Well, thinking about the job of being an Old Testament prophet, uh, that was a difficult and dangerous job, was it not? Think of some of the Old Testament prophets and think of what happened to them. Jeremiah was beaten. He was imprisoned, released, uh, captured again because the leaders of the city didn't like what he had to say, and thrown into a cistern into uh, waist-high mud as he hears the city above him being destroyed. And then Jeremiah would be hauled off to Egypt. We don't know for sure, but extra-biblical sources tell, tell us that Jeremiah would be hauled off to Egypt and killed there later, martyred uh, as a prophet. Uh, Daniel was thrown to the lions. Elijah's own queen hunted him. So this was a dangerous and difficult job to be an Old Testament prophet. Uh, to this day, there may not be anything more difficult or dangerous than obeying the will of God. And that's where we find Jonah uh, this evening. Last week, we saw Jonah. Jonah was a seasoned and experienced prophet. We went back to 2 Kings and saw the role that he had. He was uh, both a seasoned, but also a prophet of well renowned, well-mentioned. He was a prophet that was excelling in every way. He was the top of his class, literally a class of prophets. Jonah was the top. His mentor was likely Elisha. So this is a man who has the pedigree to be 
a prophet, a faithful man of God, and he served faithfully for a long time in the courts of King Jeroboam II, the nation of Israel. But the next phase of his ministry was to be the hardest. And this is where we find Jonah as we begin Jonah chapter 1, here this evening in verse 2, as we see Jonah fleeing. I mentioned that we could easily highlight, or outline rather, the book of Jonah by Jonah's actions. He flees, and uh, there's, he pouts at the end, he proclaims. There's a number of actions. There's actually five actions of Jonah, and the book pretty well lines out to those five actions. And the first one is Jonah flees, or Jonah runs. And we could say, see Jonah running, because that's where he's at. He's, he's running. He's going for all he's worth away from the things of the Lord. That's where we find him this evening. As we get into the book of Jonah, let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful to start a new series, a new book, looking into a very familiar individual to us. We've heard of him since childhood. We studied him in Sunday school, but oftentimes we've left it there, and so we've only hit the highlights. Maybe we've read through the book of Jonah several times, but usually we do so not in a meditative or studious kind of way, but rather to get it on, on through so we can get on to the next book. Lord, I pray that as we spend time here in the book of Jonah, that we would be diligent in understanding how we are like Jonah in this negative way. May we grow and learn from his negative example and glorify you in it. Lord, tonight we will end with a number of imperatives that you have given to us. I pray that we'd be reflective over these commands, that we would be recognizing the ones that we are fleeing from as we see Jonah try to flee as quickly as he can from your presence. So Lord, we give you the glory and the honor this evening. I pray that you'd give me the words to speak and us hearts to listen, to obey, that your name would be glorified in our response to your words spoken. So Lord, we love you and we thank you for all of these things. In your son's name we pray. Amen. As we begin tonight, we're going to be looking at the Lord's command first. And as we look into the Lord's command, we see very clearly that Jonah knew what the Lord was calling him to do. And the first element is the Nineveh that Jonah knew. This is important for you and I because I think we're willing to give Jonah a little bit of a bad rap. Jonah, he, he struggled. We see him fleeing. And we, we often point to him as a prophet of unfaithfulness. But we need to understand what Jonah understood. And so we begin in verse 2. The Scripture says, and I'll back up to verse 1. The Scripture says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amatai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So there's several elements that we know, both of Nineveh and from extra-biblical sources, and what we know from the Lord as he gave it to us in this passage. So, Let's first dig into the Nineveh that Jonah knew. As we mentioned last week, the book of Jonah has been trimmed down. Jonah doesn't give us any early prelude. He doesn't help set the stage. He doesn't help us to begin to understand the context. He says, beginning in verse 2, the Lord said to him, arise, go to Nineveh. So right off, he's not even, you can almost sense a, a reluctance in Jonah he doesn't want to give any more details than the Spirit of God is prompting him to write, and so he only writes those details down. And the book has been trimmed to only include the necessary details, nothing extra, nothing more. And so Jonah jumps right into the events of the call of God on his own life. He's called to go to Nineveh, and the Scripture says that this is a chief city, a, mega, or a, a large city, a great city, the Lord calls it, and Nineveh was indeed the chief city of the empire of the Assyrians. There's a number of chief cities for the Assyrian empire, but none more important than Nineveh. Nineveh was the largest of the chief city-states of the Assyrians. The Assyrians, we know, were a constant threat, especially to the northern Israel kingdom, northern Israeli kingdom. And so the Lord will eventually use the Assyrians to conquer the rebellious north. You remember, in fact, a good way as you think through Israel's history, when Israel divided the north from the south, there were no good kings in the north, not one. So we think of the wickedness that was in the people of Israel. In the northern side, there was not one single good king. None followed after the Lord. The south had a couple, and so they linger, they last longer 
than the north because they had ones like Hezekiah and others who were faithful to the Lord. But they only had a couple good kings, but the north had no good kings. The ten tribes of the north were wicked and evil in the sight of the Lord, and judgment would come, and the Lord is going to use a Gentile nation to judge them, and that Gentile nation is the Assyrians. That is going to come not long after, actually, Jonah dies, but we see that at this point, Nineveh's, or rather the Assyrians, are just a constant threat to the security and safety of northern Israel. The Assyrians uh, the, were a wicked people, uh, a very brutal people. Their city, the city Nineveh, is located in modern-day Iraq. So if you want to find it on a map, you want to find Nineveh itself, you're going to go to um, Mosul, and Mosul, Iraq, just outside of Mosul, Iraq, is uh, where Nineveh was located, or is located still, it's just ruins today. The Babylonians would conquer the kingdom about 150 years after the time of Jonah. So the Assyrians would rise up to power. They would really have about 70 to 80 years of real dominant power, and then they would start to fade away, and the Babylonians would take them just shortly after their peak in power. The Babylonians would take out the Assyrians. So the Assyrians were the first of the big three empires of the Old Testament. Uh, The big three empires being Uh, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians. And so those are the big three empires of the Old Testament. The Assyrians are the first of them. The city in Jonah's time, the city of Nineveh, was an impressive fortress built for war by warring people. In fact, as you came up uh, to the city itself, the towers of the gates of the city stood 300 feet tall. Can you imagine Jonah walking into the city of Nineveh This great city, he walks up and he looks up 300 feet to the top of the tower of the gate. There was nothing like this in the world. It wasn't like he could go to Chicago or New York or L.A. and see skyscrapers. This is an impressive structure. 300 feet straight up. It was built for war by a warring people. It was intimidating and breathtaking all at the same time. The Assyrians were known for their bloodlusts, their occultism, their cruelty, and their ferocity in battle. They were a ferocious people. In fact, a turnover to Nahum, and Nahum describes them uh, briefly for us. Just a couple books back, you have Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Nahum chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Listen to... Uh, Nahum's description of the Ninevites. This is going to come after the time of Jonah. This is the time where God is going to judge the Assyrians because they have turned again against the things of the Lord. But in chapter 3 of Nahum, verses 1 through 4, the scripture says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and Glittering spear, hosts of slain, heads of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all of the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betray nations with her whorings and and peoples with her charms. That's not a very positive description of the Ninevites. And this comes after their repentance. So they're going to repent at the end of the book of Jonah and not long later, they're going to be this people again that are filled with their occultic practices, their bloodlust, their cruelty. Uh, I find it interesting, and I mentioned this last week, if you go to the Oriental Institute and you walk into the Assyrian room of the Oriental Institute, by the way, the Assyrians were the main focus of the Oriental Institute. So the majority of the Oriental Institute is focused on just the Assyrian Empire. And I'll show some pictures later as we get into them more. Uh, but the magnificence of their structures that have been brought into and reset up in Chicago is astounding. It's awe-inspiring even there as it has been dismantled and shipped in. Uh, But the Assyrians were a vile and wicked people, and there's the reliefs, the carvings out of stone, where you have the Assyrians trampling over the bodies of those that they have killed, holding the heads of the same. And I liken them again to ISIS, as we mentioned last week. And this was a people who were cruel, bloodthirsty. It was 
I didn't mention last week, but I'll mention tonight. It was the Assyrian custom to gouge out the eyes of their victims, of their prisoners, or to put hooks in their noses and humiliate them by leading them through in triumphal entry and uh, parades like cattle before slaughtering them. So they would kill their victims after humiliating them in every way. And remember one of the ways that they did that as well is cutting off every limb, leaving only the right hand to shake the hand of their victim as they bled to death. That was the Assyrian Empire. So lest we be too harsh on Jonah, consider the world in which he viewed the Ninevites. These Assyrians were wicked people. In fact, uh, let's add one more to it since we are. Uh, they were The Assyrians were the first to impale their captives alive. They're the ones who taught Nero how to light his gardens. They would hang them on the stake. That's, that's how hanging was. We think of hanging in the western U.S. sense. That's not how hanging was done. It wasn't with a rope. You were hung by being impaled on a spike. And the Assyrians said, well, that's not enough. Let's coat them in tar while they're still alive and light them on fire. Nero would pick up the same and do that to Christians, lighting his gardens in the Roman era. But it was first done by the Assyrians. They were the ones who would do this. So when we come to Jonah chapter 1, we see that Jonah understands who the Ninevites are. These are the constant threats he served in the king's court. He knows the messages. He knows the rumors. He knows the, the conversations that have swirled through the king's courts about the Ninevites. There's great fear about the Assyrians. And we also know that not only does Jonah understand their brutality, but he understands something about God. In fact, I would say he understands a lot about God. We're going to see this played out in the next few moments. But go to Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Notice what Jonah understands about God. Verse 1 says of chapter 4, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God a merciful and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So Jonah understands the heart of God as well as the understands the cruelty of the Ninevites. He says, if I go to the Ninevites, God, you're going to show mercy to those people, and they don't deserve mercy. They don't deserve your compassion. They don't deserve your forgiveness, and so I'm not going to go. That's what is motivating him, and he says as much in chapter 4. That's what's motivating him in chapter 1. He knows the heart of the Ninevites. He knows the danger that, is going, that will be when he goes there. And he understands God's mercy. And putting the two together, he doesn't want the Ninevites to be saved. There is a problem that you and I face similar to that. Have you ever had somebody that you said, you know what, they'll never come to know Christ as Savior. And I'm certainly not going to be the one to tell them. You don't understand. They are wicked. They are brutal. They've treated me harshly. I'm not going to be the one to share Christ with them. I think that whether it is passive or active, we've encountered people like that where we say, you know what, I'm just going to pass this. They're going to ridicule me. They're going to mock me anyway. It's not going to matter for eternity. Jonah is that right now in chapter 1, verse 2. That's where he's at. So I'm not going to go, God have compassion on them. He will have compassion on them, but I don't think that they need to hear of it from me. And so we begin to move through God's clear command. And uh, this is important. In fact, Steve highlighted a little bit ago. We're going to see this over and over. Uh, notice God's command. He says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. There's three elements to Jonah's command, to the command that is given to Jonah. First, go. God made his call to Jonah very clear. You didn't need to pull out a dictionary. He didn't need to pull out his Hebrew and say, okay, what does God mean? i got to find a loophole here. The command is clear. Arise, go, and call out against the city. 
These are commands to Jonah. They are not suggestions. Like Jonah, we, when we disobey God, it is not because we don't know what he wants. In fact, we know what he wants. Tonight, Lord willing, we're going to end with a series of imperatives. There's just seven or eight of them that I'm going to give to you out of dozens of imperatives, dozens of commands in the New Testament that you are commanded to do, that you and I as believers are commanded to do. We know what God wants us to do. The question is, do we want to do it? We may try to convince ourselves of a certain excuse that we can't do it, that we don't know what God really wants. But instead, we know what He wants. We just don't like His commandment. We don't like His directives. Because we don't want to do that. And that's where Jonah is at. The commands given to Jonah are clear. They are not complicated. They are not leaving Jonah guessing. He knows what it is. So God gives a clear command. And God did not hide the reality. God does not hide the reality. In fact, notice again what he says in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against it, for their evil has come up before me. In other words, the smell of their wickedness has lofted to me. That is literally what that phrase means. Because I smell their decay. I smell their grotesque cruelty. Their despicable wickedness. And God does not try to hide that truth from Jonah. He doesn't hide the condition of Nineveh. He told Jonah that their evil had come up before him. Their wickedness did not escape the notice of the Lord. And the Lord does not sugarcoat it. He does not try to convince Jonah. He tells Jonah. Sometimes you and I would like the Lord to try to convince us to obey. But the Lord tells us what he demands of us. And the reality is, God shared it in all of, its, all of its wickedness. He says they are wicked people. There are certainly times when we are tempted to believe that the task that God has called us to is harder than the Lord expected us to encounter. Say, so, but Lord, if you really knew, I know that you called me here, but if you really knew what was going to take place, we know theologically that God knew all that. But when it comes out practically, in the practical living of daily life, we say, but God, this is certainly harder than you would have known, or you wouldn't have sent me here. You wouldn't have put me in this position, Lord. If you, if you really would have thought about it, you wouldn't have put me in this position. Now, we understand that there's a challenge to that. We understand the theological truth that God knows all things, and that God has He's omnipotent. He has all power to do all things. We understand this. But it's important that we understand that, practically speaking, living that out on a day-to-day -day basis, we are those who typically would respond, Lord, if you really knew what this was, you wouldn't have sent me here. So now you need to rescue me out of this. And isn't that what we do in our, our selfishness? Say, Lord, this is too tough. You sent me someplace, and it's just way too hard. Uh, we might believe that God would never call us to something that is beyond our capacity. In fact, we've even used that as a slogan. As a motto, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not true. God will always give you more than you can handle. But then he'll provide the way to handle it. It'll be through his strength. So when Jonah is here at this point, he is not to a point where he's saying, God, I can handle this. If you can handle it in your own, then, then who gets the glory? You do. God is going to exceed your capacities. He's going to exceed your capabilities, and He does so on a regular basis. He does so all the time. Husbands, you are to love your wife as Christ loves the church. Does that exceed your capacities? Yes, it does. Wives, you are to honor your husband. Does that exceed your capacities? Yes, it does. See, we are called to do those things which exceed our capacities all the time, but it is through the strength of the Lord. It is through the Lord's direction and His, uh, His capabilities, His power, that is seen through us. And that is what is happening to Jonah. When we believe that God would never call us to do these tasks, this thinking demonstrates not only a lack of faith, but also a woeful ignorance of God and His ways. And despite all that Jonah knew about God, and he knows a lot about God, he still allows this trickle in. Jonah was called to go whether he felt good about it or not. 
whether he wanted to or not, whether he agreed with God or not, or whether he was comfortable or not, if he was fearful or not, was happy with it or not, or whether he thought the Ninevites were worth it or not, did not matter, God called him to go. And God doesn't hide the reality. He doesn't say, well, Jonah, they're not as bad as you really think. He says, no, their evils come up all the way up to me. I've smelled their decay. Their evils come all the way up to me. Now I'm going to send you, Jonah, to go take care of that. God didn't hide the reality, nor does God's call promise safety. God's call does not promise safety. It's important to notice that that's missing. In verse 2, you have the call. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And that is the command. That's all that Jonah receives. We're going to see that there's a little bit more later as well. But that's what Jonah receives. Jonah's called to go. And the Lord doesn't say, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to keep you safe. God says, their evil has come up to me. I've smelled it. I understand that they're a wicked people. I understand what they've done. I understand that they gouge out the eyes of their victims. I understand that, Jonah, you believe that you might be lighting some street by the end of the week. I understand. And I'm not promising you your safety. It is important to note that it's missing. That what's missing from the call is any kind of promise for the safety of Jonah. God has called him to go with no safety nets. So, Before we're too quick to condemn Jonah's lack of faith, his fear, Jonah had significant reasons for fear, and I'm sure many excuses, and a good reason to believe that it's not going to work. The images of the cruelty of the people and Jonah's belief in a just God all combined in Jonah's mind to say, I'm out. I'm out. So what is Jonah's answer? Well, Jonah runs. Jonah runs. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarsus, so he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarsus, away from the presence of the Lord. Now this is where I think we allow our Sunday school theology to drip into a good, solid bibliology. So we're going to digest this a little bit and work our way through it. And again, lest we're too quick to judge Jonah, remember that Jonah's not the only one who's run. Who else ran? What other prophets ran? Actually, the mentor to his mentor ran. Elijah. After the prophets of Baal were destroyed, can you imagine the imagery as Elijah meets these prophets of Baal He's even mocking the prophets of Baal, and they're incessant crying out to the Lord or crying out to their God, to Baal, to consume the offering, and nothing's happening. And, and Elijah mocks them, says, Where's your God? Maybe he's, maybe he's taking care, he's answering the call of nature. There's all kinds of things that Elijah does, and, and then when the fire doesn't come down from Baal, Elijah prays, and the fire from the Lord consumes both offerings, even though it's been soaked. And it consumes up all of the water. And then Elijah prays, and the cloud begins to build up, and the drought is lifted from the land. And what does Elijah do? First, he wins a, he wins a foot race with a horse. He runs all the way back to the palace, And then he hears that Jezebel's out to get him. After seeing this magnificent display of the power of God, Elijah goes and hides. He flees. So Jonah's not the only one. Uh, All of that is accounted for us or recounted for us in 1 Kings 19.3 in uh, context there. So Jonah's not the first one to run. He's picked up the habits of his mentor's mentor, and he now runs. Remember, as we studied last week, that Jonah was from Gath-Hepfer. Gath-Hepfer, according to uh, what we've studied in 2 Kings, uh, we know that that's where he's from. So Gath-Hepfer is three miles from Nazareth, three miles northwest of Nazareth. So if you draw a straight line from Nazareth over to Nineveh, you know that 
you don't climb very much in the latitude lines, uh, but uh, you do go further to the east. And so uh, further to the east, you basically draw a straight line through there, just a little bit over the Fertile Crescent to get down into modern-day Iraq and to Nineveh. But Joppa is to the west of Nazareth. If you were to go to Israel today, you understand that not only is it to the west, but it's a little bit to the south. And so Jonah, who's three miles from Nazareth, is now going to get moving as he hears the Lord say, Arise, go, and proclaim against Nineveh. And so what does he do? He gets up, he arises, he goes, but instead of going east, he goes west and south, and he goes to the port city of Joppa, which is uh, today Joppa. And uh, it's still, it's a beautiful spot on the Mediterranean. And while he's there, we know that he boards a boat that is headed for Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is not the same as where Paul was born and raised, not where Paul came from, which is also Tarshish, but... There's a Tarsus that is out far out to the west near Spain. It's the furthest away in the known world. So to an Assyrian Empire world, Jonah is sailing from Joppa all the way out to as far as he could possibly get away to the west, to Tarsus. That's where he's going. It's the most western, modern, uh, most western spot to the known world of his time. Now let's put this, because this geography is a little bit hard for us, let's just put this into some other geological perspective, a geographical perspective rather. And one author puts it this way, he says, this would be like the word of the Lord coming to a Jewish man living in New York during World War II, commanding this Jewish man to go to Berlin and deliver a warning of judgment from God to Nazi Germany. And instead of obeying, driving himself to New York, or driving himself from New York to San Francisco, boarding a ship bound for Hong Kong. That is what just happened with Jonah. He's gotten in his car and he's driven from New York to San Francisco. He's boarded a boat headed to Hong Kong as far as he can get away from where God wants him to be. The text tells us that Jonah sought to flee from the presence of the Lord, and this is where I think our theological, our Sunday school theological understanding gets in the way. Jonah had been a faithful prophet of the Lord, right? For decades, Jonah had served the Lord faithfully, had proclaimed the word of the Lord, had spoken at the highest levels of the northern kingdom of Israel. He certainly knew the psalmist's words in Psalm 139, verse 7, that says, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? Jonah is not trying to flee from the imminent presence of God. See, but that's what the text says, that he's fleeing from the presence of God. Well, the phrase is probably better translated that Jonah was fleeing from the service of the Lord. In fact, the New Jerusalem translation translates it that way, where Jonah is fleeing from the service of the Lord. Jonah certainly knows that he can't flee from the presence of God. He's not trying to flee from the presence of God. Jonah quit. Jonah resigned. He's done. And that's what that phrase, twice repeated in this verse, means. That Jonah says, I'm done. I, I quit being a prophet. He's saying to God, I've had it. I'm not doing that anymore. Find another prophet. And Jonah quits. That is what it means that Jonah ran. He quit. He knows that God knows. He knows that he can't flee from the presence. In fact, it would be, and this is one of the hang-ups that I had as a child about this passage, when we would study through this passage, say, well, he, fleed from, he was fleeing from the presence of God. But Jonah knew. Jonah was a prophet of God. He knows that God is everywhere present. He knows that he can't run from God. And... We also know that Jonah didn't want to do what God said. And so Jonah turned in his resignation, effective immediately, right here. He's headed west. God wants him east. He's going west. I quit. That's the message that Jonah is proclaiming. He is truly running. 
And that's where we find him at the end of verse 3. It's interesting as we think of that, all that Jonah had to do to go through that. So that helps us a little bit recognize some of the lessons that we're going to learn from a rebellious prophet. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our evening. There's some lessons from a rebellious prophet. When we run from God in disobedience, we are going the wrong way. When we run from God in disobedience, we are going the wrong way. Whether you're Jonah or fill in your name, when you run from God in disobedience, you are going the wrong way. Can you imagine Jonah? In fact, the Scripture opens us up for us in verse 3. In the middle of verse 3, it says, He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarsus, and he paid the fare and went down into it, that is, into the ship, to go with them to Tarsus. He's going to complete his resignation. He's going to go away from Tarsus. Can you imagine Jonah at the seaport of Joppa as he's going ship by ship, captain to captain, and he's asking them where they're going. And perhaps one says that they're going, going to Greece. Maybe another one says to Crete. Maybe another one says they're going to northern Africa. And he finally comes across one who says, I'm going to Tarsus, the furthest that we can safely sail away from here. I'm going to there. And at that point, Jonah says, are you taking passengers? I want to board your ship. When finding the ship sailing as far as possible, did Jonah feel guilt when he paid the fare? It's fascinating to me that in a book where Jonah cuts out all of the details, that he records that he paid the fare. We don't get all of the details of every incident that happened throughout the book of Jonah, but we certainly get this one. Jonah says that he found a ship going to Tarsus, so he paid the fare. He paid the fare. It doesn't say he boarded the ship. It specifically says he paid the fare. When finding that ship, sailing as far as possible, did Jonah feel guilt when he paid for the fare? There is so much wrong in not doing right. There are so many people affected by one person's sin. We haven't even gotten into the book, but think of the number of people who have been affected already by Jonah's sin. Well, we've only focused on Jonah. Well, certainly, but now we focused on the captain of the ship and the, ship, uh, the sailors on the ship as well. They're going to be affected by it. In the very next verse, they're going to be affected by Jonah's rebellion. Think of the people in Nineveh. They've certainly been impacted in the delay of Jonah's arrival. Think of Jonah's own testimony. When we run from God in disobedience... We are going the wrong way. There is no right way when we're fleeing from God. And Jonah's going to learn that quickly. That's our first lesson from a rebellious prophet. Our second lesson, when we run from God in disobedience, we pay a higher price than we planned. When we run from God in disobedience, we pay a higher price than we planned. No ticket agent in Joppa could tell Jonah what it was actually going to cost him to flee from God in disobedience. No ticket agent could say, yeah, by the way, you're going to get a one-way trip out into the middle of the Mediterranean. And then you're going to get swallowed by a fish. You're going to be spit back up on the shore someplace. No ticket agent could tell Jonah what was actually going to cost him to flee from God in disobedience. The old saying is still true. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. Sin will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. It will do so for Jonah. In fact, we're going to see some of that in Jonah come later, come later on in the passage of the book of Jonah. We're going to see this to be true. You will pay a higher price for disobedience than you could ever have planned. And third, our third lesson is, when we run from God in disobedience, the enemy will aid our flight. The enemy will aid our flight. I find it fascinating in verse 3 how easy it was for Jonah to find a ship. To find passage on a ship and to set sail. 
Jonah was probably happy. Can you imagine Jonah? Let's, let's pick Jonah up here in the end of verse 3. It says, He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarsus. Can you imagine the heart of Jonah at this moment? I found the ride. He doesn't even know where he's going up to this point. He arrives in Joppa because he had to go to Joppa. He wants to go west. He wants to sail west. You go to Joppa to sail west. So he doesn't even know where he's going. And he finds a ship going as far as you could possibly go safely in a sailing vessel. We're going to go all the way to Joppa. And Jonah says, that's where I'm going. I'm going to leave Joppa. I'm going to go all the way to Tarsus. That's where I'm going. And how easy that was. How easy it was for him. But now he has to convince the captain to let him ride. And so, Jonah goes to the next step. And so, the middle of verse 3, it says, So he paid the fare. Ah, so he's negotiated with the captain a reasonable fare to travel from Joppa to Tarsus. Another green light. The door's just opening in front of Jonah like you wouldn't believe. He's found a ride to Tarsus, and he's paid the fare. He's already on board the ship. And then... He goes down into the ship to go with them to Tarsus. He's settling in to his cabin for the duration of the, of the voyage. Jonah was probably happy when he found a ship headed to, from Joppa to Tarsus. He was probably even happier when he was able to get passage. He was even happier when he actually boarded the ship and went, Whew, I made it. Here I am. I'm going to head to Tarsus. I'm going to go all the way there. Nothing's going to stop me from getting all the way there. And in his mind, I imagine when the storm first blows up in verse 4, he's thinking, I don't really care if God were to kill me out here. I don't want to go to Nineveh. I quit. I don't want to go to Nineveh. I want to die. In fact, we're going to see that in him over and over and over. This prophet is bound and determined to not go to Nineveh. But it's important for you and I, as we're gleaning something from Jonah, it's important that we understand that when we run from God in disobedience, the enemy is more than happy to open the doors for us. He will open the doors for us. In this moment, at the end of verse 3, Jonah felt everything had come together. Everything was the way it was supposed to be. He knew God's clear directive, and there had to be a a twinge of guilt with that, because we even see perhaps some evidence of that in the text. But Jonah is saying, look, the doors are open. I can flee with ease. Jonah felt everything was coming together, but anytime you want to run from God, you can expect easy transportation to be readily available. And it was for Jonah. We're going to leave Jonah there for now with just a a couple exceptions, which I'll mention in just a moment. But I want to jump to us today. And so there's some more writing to do. Uh, Consider the imperatives that are non-negotiable commands for you and I. I'm just going to highlight a few of them. I'll do so slow. There's actually eight that I'm going to highlight. There's dozens of them in Scripture. There's eight that I'm going to highlight. First, we are commanded to follow Christ, John 12, 26. We are commanded to follow Christ, John 12, 26. Second, we are commanded to speak the truth, Ephesians 4, 24. We are commanded to speak truth, Ephesians 4, 24. We are commanded, actually that's Ephesians 4, 25. We are commanded to put on the new self, Ephesians 4, 24. We are to put on the new self, Ephesians 4, 24. We are commanded to be alert, Ephesians 6, 18. To be on guard, to stand firm, to be alert, Ephesians 6, 18. We are commanded to flee immorality, flee immorality, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. We are commanded to pray with thanksgiving. I'll give you this list again in just a moment. We are commanded to... Pray with thanksgiving, Philippians 4, 6. We're about to get there in our study in Philippians. To pray with thanksgiving, always rejoicing. 
we are commanded to sing with gratitude to God. Sing with gratitude, Colossians 3.16. It's pretty easy for us to sing as curmudgeons, grumpy, but we are commanded to sing with gratitude to God, Colossians 3.16. And we are commanded to study the Word, 2 Timothy 2.15. Study the Word, 2 Timothy 2.15. Over and over and over, we have command after command after command in the New Testament, clear imperatives for you and I to follow. I'm going to give these to you again briefly now. Follow Christ, John 12, 26. Speak the truth, Ephesians 4, 25. Put on the new self, Ephesians 4, 24. Be alert, Ephesians 6, 18. Flee immorality, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Pray with thanksgiving, Philippians 4, 6. Sing with gratitude to God, Colossians 3, 16. And study the word, 2 Timothy 2, 15. These are the clear, non-negotiable commands, imperatives from the Lord that have been given to you. These are just the beginning. There's dozens of clear commands from the Lord. How are you doing with those? How are you doing? Are you looking for Tarshish? Maybe you don't even know it, but you're looking to set sail to as far away as you can possibly be from those clear imperatives. Where you hope to avoid the difficulty of the dirty work that God has called you to do. We know that it's a challenge. We know that it's hard. The words of one author summarize how Jonah should have responded to God's unusually difficult command. And this is helpful for us in responding to the imperatives that I've just listed and the dozens of others. This is how Jonah should have responded. This author says, I am not the master of my destiny. Not even my daily life. God is. To obey means to yield my will for His will, my desire for His desire, to engage in activity that is different or unpleasant or strange or dangerous or difficult or simply a drudge. I relinquish control. Another calls the shots. I am no longer my own master. That's how Jonah should have responded. That's how you and I should respond to those imperatives. We don't like them. It means that we have to do something different than our will desires us to do. It means we have to step out of what's comfortable to do that which is uncomfortable. But those are still, nonetheless, the imperatives that have been given to you and I. I found this phrase interesting as well, and we're going to close here. Another author says this, Jonah might not have slept so soundly had he been able to see through the flooring of his cabin down into the deep waters of the Mediterranean Sea, far below the ship. A creature was swimming quietly, keeping pace, under orders to just tag along. Unlike Jonah, this creature will obey every command from its Creator God. And I would add to that, that if Jonah could see out into the distance, he could see a storm brewing that would respond to every command of the Lord, a storm that will be obedient to those commands when the prophet was rebellious. Jonah is very much like you and I. We can identify with Jonah here. Jonah was a seasoned prophet of God, a faithful servant of the Lord for decades. And now in his retirement, most likely into his retirement, God has called him to do the most difficult task that God had ever called him to do. To go to a city of cruel, wicked occultists and to proclaim repentance is at hand. Destruction is going to come. Jonah knows the heart of the Lord. He knows that God will show mercy and grace to them and he doesn't want it. He determines that he knows better than God and knowing that God is still going to show compassion, Jonah says, I quit. Effective immediately, find yourself another prophet. And he flees. We leave him off in verse two, in verse three, rather, as he is on the ship, headed to Tarsus, having submitted his resignation and having fled in the same instant. And he's out in the middle. By the time we get somewhere between verse three and verse four, he's already out in the middle 
the Mediterranean Sea. So as we pick him back up next week, Lord willing, we're going to dig more deeply and we're going to see how God is going to begin to work. And we recognize it. We know the story from, we know all the narrative as it plays out from our childhood, right? But we have much to dig into as we look into the life of Jonah. I trust that you will consider those imperatives. And in your own study this week, as you see those imperatives, write them down. What is God calling you to do? And will you flee to Tarsus or will you obey? Those are the questions we have to ask on every single one of the imperatives that we study in the Word of God this week. Let us close now this evening in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We are thankful because we see the example of Jonah. We can learn the lessons that Jonah should have learned. We can follow the examples that we study and we know the what we ought not to be doing. As Christians, we've studied just eight brief imperatives, commands that we must follow as Christians. I pray that we would not be boarding a ship in Joppa headed for Tarsus when it comes time to fulfill those commands. Lord, I pray that we would be those who are not fleeing, not submitting our resignation effective immediately, but instead are those who are fully engaged and recognizing that when we flee in disobedience from you, we're going to pay a price far greater than we could have ever imagined. That when we're going in disobedience, we're not going in the right direction. That we're fleeing from you. May we also be careful to observe the easy getaway that Satan will often provide for us. May we not take the wide path that's smooth and comfortable, but may we take the narrow path that is obedience and following after you. Lord, we praise you for the lessons we can learn here in the life of Jonah. Pray that we'd be diligent in applying them to our own lives as we seek to serve you in faithfulness and obedience, that you alone would be glorified in it. Lord, as we depart from here this evening, we ask your blessing upon us, cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of you, that our sanctification would increase this week, Opportunities for the gospel would be apparent and bold before us, that we'd be quick to step into those opportunities to share Christ, that your name would be glorified in that as well. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things, and it is in Christ's name that we pray them. Amen.